This week we welcome Dr. Paula Stone Williams to Grace Point. Paula is an author and internationally known speaker on gender equity, LGBTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance. She's also a pastor and pastoral counselor in Boulder County, Colorado. Paula has been featured in the New York Times, TED Women, TED Summit, TEDx Mile High, Red Table Talk, The Denver Post, New York Post, New Scientist Magazine, Radio, you get it, right? Uh, Paula is super accomplished and many other media outlets. Her book, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned was released last year. And let me just say, I've uh, known Paula for quite a while now. And uh, she has been one of the biggest encouragers, uh, a dear friend, uh, one of the most brilliant minds, and one of the best preachers you are ever gonna hear. So will you join me in welcoming Paula? As she So it's years ago, and we were on vacation in Canada, and I was looking forward to going fishing with my three brothers-in-law. And John and I got on our boat. We started rowing up the St. Lawrence River. We were not making a lot of progress. The wind was against us. On the other hand, we were definitely making more progress than my other two brothers-in-law, Dave and Tom, in their boat. Now, Dave was rowing just as hard as he possibly could row, but it looked to me like he wasn't going anywhere at all. Fact of the matter was that David was not going anywhere at all. You see, he was still tied to the dock. <laughs> Here he was, rowing for all he's worth, trying to pull all of Canada behind him. And you know, what made it even better is he was a university president. You know, just looking like a fool. John and I laughed so hard, we just about turned our boat over. You know, funny things happen in boats. And it's always been intriguing to me that some of the most important lessons the disciples ever learned were epiphanies they gained when they were in boats. And yes, that's right. We're going to talk about a couple of those boat stories this morning because it's true. Important lessons are learned in boats. Our first boat story comes in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus had just completed eight mini parables. He was ready to head back across the Sea of Galilee. He got in the back of the boat. The disciples are in the front of the boat. They head across the Sea of Galilee, and a terrible storm kicked up just like that which, as I understand it, is not all that unusual on the Sea of Galilee, only this storm was worse than usual. Waves are crashing against the bow of the boat. The wind is whistling through the boat. The disciples thought, well, this is the end. We're going to die right here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they turned to the back of the boat, and there was Jesus, sound asleep. <clears throat> Don't you just hate it? When someone has the capacity to be completely and utterly comfortable in the midst of what you were convinced are dire circumstances. So, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I was with my friend, and we were headed across the Great South Bay of Long Island, New York, where I still lived at the time. And we were on our kayaks, and it was late November, but one of those really, really warm late fall days. So we didn't wear our wetsuits, and we were going to this favorite inlet on the other side. And we were still a little bit of a ways from it when we got hit by a trailing wave. And it turned over both of our kayaks. Now, we had really stable kayaks. So once they go over, you're not flipping them back up. You've only got one option, a wet exit. Now, to do that, you have to pull up in the front of the spray skirt, push yourself out of the kayak like you're taking off a pair of pants, and you have to do all of this while you're upside down under the water. And did I mention it was late November? 
That water was so cold. When I finally got to the surface, I'm like, we're going to die, we're going to die. I'm desperate. And I looked over at my friend who's just as calm as calm can be. I'm thinking, we've we got to swim to the shore. And he said, Paula, stand up. <laughs> yeah, sure enough. Water was about four feet deep, just kind of <laughs> pulling the kayak along. <laughs> well, that's what's going on here. The disciples are terrified for their lives. Jesus is sound asleep in the back of the boat. They wake him up, not because they really think he can do anything, because they're desperate for any kind of help. And at this point, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And then he speaks to the storm just three words. He says to the storm, quiet, be still. And the storm just stopped. Now, I can say that all day long to my five granddaughters. Nothing ever happens. <laughs> Jesus says it one time to the storm, and the storm just stopped. Now, I imagine at this point, the disciples were probably feeling a little foolish for having said anything to Jesus in the first place. But very quickly, it occurs to them, if at first they were terrified of the storm, now they just found a far more compelling reason to be terrified. Now they're terrified of this man, Jesus. Who is this man that with a few simple words, he can calm a raging storm? I know how they felt about Jesus. They were drawn to him and yet frightened of him all at the same time. Do you ever watch little kids at Christmas time? They can't wait to go see Santa Claus until it's actually time to go see Santa Claus. Then they see this large, formidable figure all dressed in red with a long white beard, and hey, he knows when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. No wonder they cry their eyes out when they have to sit in the old man's lap, right? They're drawn to him, frightened of him, all at the same time. C.S. Lewis had an understanding of these kinds of things. In his Chronicles of Narnia series of books, Aslan, the lion, is the hero of the books. and The children are very taken by Aslan, but at the same time, they're kind of frightened of him because he's a lion. And if he wanted to, he could tear them limb from limb. And Lewis was fond of saying throughout all seven books that Aslan was not a safe lion, you know. He's good, but he's not safe. And that was the first epiphany for the disciples. The recognition that Jesus was good, but he was anything but safe. You know, I knew from the time I was three or four years of age that I was transgender. In my naivete, and I think my white male privilege, I thought I got to choose. I thought a gender fairy would arrive and say, okay, what's it going to be? But alas, no gender fairy arrives, so I just lived my life. I didn't hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. Went to school, got married, had kids, built a career, but the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm. And eventually decisions have to be made. And so I came out as transgender and promptly lost every single one of my jobs. I had never had a bad review. And I lost every single job within seven days. In all 50 states of the United States, you cannot be fired for being transgender. But in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. Good to know. It's not easy. Being a transgender woman, people often ask me, do you feel 100% like a woman? And I say, well, first of all, if you've talked to one transgender person, you've talked to exactly 
one transgender person. I'm not going to speak for anybody else. I feel 100% like a transgender woman. There are a lot of things a cisgender woman knows I will never know. That said, I'm learning a lot about what it means to be a woman, and I'm learning a lot about my former gender. And I'm here to tell you the differences are massive. Let's start with the little stuff, like the pockets on women's jeans. Can somebody explain these to me? You can't put anything in there, a paper clip, maybe. You know, I bought a pair of jeggings not long ago. They have stitching there that makes you think there's a pocket, but no, there is no pocket there. You know, last year, I spoke at the Levi's Corporation headquarters in San Francisco. Finally, my chance to find out. Yeah, nobody there knew either. Yeah, they're just really small. Yeah, you think so? Or the size of a woman's wardrobe. As a guy, it was simple. I had, I don't know, five pairs of jeans, a couple of pairs of khakis, a blue sport coat, some button-down collar shirts. What do you really need? As a woman, I have closets and closets full of clothes, because if you wear something too often, people notice. Well, men don't notice because they're men, but women (laughs) notice, and they will judge you for it. Here's something you will never hear spoken to a man. You will never hear anybody say to a man, oh, dude, that's not a good haircut for a man over 50. Because we don't care if a man looks like he's over 50 or 60 or 70 for that matter. But a woman, you know, people say, who's your hairdresser? As if to say, do you really even have a hairdresser? And if you do, does she know you're over 50? You know, there's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor how much he starts closer to the finish line than anyone else. There's no way he can understand that, because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way for a woman to really understand the full import of that, because being a woman is all she's ever known. Now, she might have more than an inkling that she's working twice as hard for 75% as much, but really she has no idea how much more difficult it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Now, the truth is, I will not live long enough to lose my white male privilege. I brought it with me when I transitioned. But that doesn't mean I don't see my power diminishing. So I was brought onto the board of a large nonprofit. We have a big annual conference. We had a new CEO. We were discussing in a board meeting as to whether or not we would have her speak for the conference, give a keynote, and I said, well, she's not exactly a public speaker. It might be better if we interview her, but if you want her to give a keynote, I'm happy to coach her. At which point, a powerful white man in the room said, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we hire a real coach? Now, a lot of people in the room knew exactly what I've done. I mean, I waited particularly for the women to speak up, but that's another thing I've discovered. Women tend not to empower one another, but that's a different conversation for a different day. What I wanted to say was, because nobody spoke up, what I wanted to say was, um, I've done three TED Talks that have had over nine million views. I'm a speaker's ambassador for TED. I'm a coach, speaker's coach for the largest TEDx in North America. I've taught speech at three universities, two in the United States, one in Europe. Tell me, what part about that does not make me a real coach? But instead, I said nothing because, well, if I say something, now I'm just that woman. 
There's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much more difficult it is for a woman. You know, when I came out as transgender, I lost every single one of my jobs. I was a national leader in my denomination of 7,000 churches. I knew literally thousands of people by name. I'd been with the organization for 35 years. I'd taken them from a budget of $160,000 to a budget of $4 million. We were the largest in the nation of what we did. And I was gone in 24 hours. I lost my pension, which was worth $1 million, because they could. And I've knew thousands of people by name, but post-transition, I've had substantive conversations with exactly six of those people. Six. Here's the truth the disciples discovered that day. The truth will set you free, but it's likely to make you miserable first. You know, we as humans like to think that the truth is more important to us than belonging, but it's simply not that way. I'm a psychotherapist by trade. My doctorate is in pastoral counseling. So I have clients who are coming to grips with the abuse they received at the hands of a family member, often their father, and they're ready to confront that perpetrator. And it's a moment of great courage for them. And so as they're preparing to confront the perpetrator, they say, you know, the entire family, the rest of my family, everybody knows this took place, so I know they will all back me up in this, and I have to say, oh yeah, actually, probably not. And I hate it, but 99 out of 100 times, I'm right. They don't. Because even though the rest of the family knows who the perpetrator is and knows what happened, they are not willing to speak up for the truth because belonging, for most of us, is more important than the truth. The disciples discovered that day, the truth will set you free, but it will make you miserable first. So we move on to the second lesson that the disciples learned in a boat. Sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus had just finished feeding 10,000, 5,000 people from a few loaves and fishes. A spontaneous party erupts among the people. We have a new king for Israel, King Jesus, not interested in being a political king. He leaves, tells the 12 to go back down and cross the Sea of Galilee. You can see them shuffling down to the seaside thinking, the time was so right for him to make himself king. You know, and they, they look at the boat, they look at the water, they look at the boat again, deja vu sets in, we don't want to do this. And they head out across the Sea of Galilee, and sure enough, a storm kicks up again. Only this time, there's no Jesus sound asleep in the back of the boat. And they look out on the water, and a ghost is walking toward them. The ghost speaks. He says, take courage, it is I. Interesting word, courage. I always thought to be courageous meant to step forward without any fear whatsoever. Finally, it occurred to me, that's not courage, that's stupidity. <laughs> courage is stepping forward even though you are absolutely terrified with fear. And Peter, rather courageously, thought he'd heard that ghost before. And he said, Lord, if that's you, tell me to walk to you in the water. So Jesus said, okay, walk to me in the water. And Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water. You ever done that? I, I've never done that. I don't know anybody who's ever done that. Well, no, actually, I take that back. 
You know, I grew up in northern Ohio and used to go to this church camp, Round Lake Christian Assembly. Called that because it had a big round lake. And so when you're, they were doing this Bible drama and they decided to do a Bible drama of this story and it was really kind of cool because there was this floating dock in the middle of the swimming area and they filled the floating dock ballast just with enough water that it sank right down to water level which was really kind of cool because Jesus looks like he's actually walking on the water, but then unfortunately Jesus couldn't tell where the edge of the dock was. (laughs) And he falls into the water, and then to make things worse, Jesus doesn't swim all that well. So the disciples in the boat had to save him, which kind of destroyed the impact of the entire thing. You know, I've never walked in the water, neither have you. Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water. Yeah, he took his eyes off Jesus, fell into the water. Yeah, who cares? That's not the important point. Of course he took his eyes off Jesus and fell into the water. The important point is that he had the courage to get out of the boat and walk in the water in the first place. Joseph Campbell called it the hero's journey. It's common to every culture, every late age, every language, every ethnicity, every people group. The elements are always the same. An ordinary citizen is called onto an extraordinary journey onto the road of trials. And initially, they reject that call because they're not stupid. It's the road of trials. Nobody willingly goes onto the road of trials. Ah, but now they know they've been called. And so they're miserable because they know they've been called and they've rejected the call. And a spiritual guide comes into their life, a Yoda, if you will, who gives them the courage to answer the call onto the hero's journey And they answer the call, and sure enough, it's a road of trials. It's miserable. And then it gets worse. (laughs) Invariably, on the hero's journey, it gets worse. They find themselves in a deep, dark cave. It's what Dante was talking about at the beginning of the Divine Comedy when he said, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Yeah, the dark cave on the hero's journey. It's Shakespeare's Macbeth, Life is but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Yep, it's the angst of existential despair in the deep, dark, black cave, on the road of trials, on the hero's journey. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. So you're on the hero's journey. You're on the road of trials. Now you're utterly and completely lost in a deep, dark cave. And you know what? It's okay. It's all right, because lost, well, lost is a place too. That's right, lost is a place too. And there are things you can learn in the place called lost you simply cannot learn any other way. A certain kind of wisdom you can gain in the place called lost you simply cannot gain any other way. And sometimes you've got to spend a long time in that place called lost. A, a week, a month, a year. It's not pleasant. It was probably a year in the first year after I transitioned. And then again, the last 18 months, I found myself in that deep, dark cave, the place called lost. It is not ever fun, but it's necessary. Because otherwise, you don't gain the wisdom you need to gain. Rilke talks about it beautifully in his poem, The Man Watching. That poem ends like this. He says, winning does not tempt that man, the man truly watching his life. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated, 
decisively by greater beings. So yeah, you're in this place called lost, but lost is a place too, and so you spend the time you have to spend there, and finally you see the light at the end of the tunnel, and this time it's not an oncoming train, thankfully. And so you get out on the normal, ordinary road of trials, which now feels like nothing, even what you just went through. And then finally, on the hero's journey, you get to the golden truth, the ending piece, the holy grail, the pearl of great price. Only you realize when you get there that the holy grail is actually not the end of the hero's journey. You actually have to take that and bring it back and give it as an offering to those from whom you have departed. Only then are you free to go. Now, here's the thing. Every last one of us has been called onto the hero's journey. Every one of us. The question isn't whether you've been called. The question is whether you'll find the courage to answer the call onto the hero's journey. And here's the thing about the call onto the hero's journey. It will always be to an area of your giftedness. All of us have three different levels of abilities. I'm using these terms arbitrarily, but first we have abilities. And ability is something you're good at, but you really don't like. So I have my own small corporation, and I do the books for the corporation. I'm good at it. I, I really hate it. I don't like it at all. That's an ability. We also have gifts. A gift is an ability you have that you enjoy so much, you lose track of time when you're doing it. I love the gifts that God has given me. One of my gifts is writing. I really love writing, lose track of time doing it. I love being a therapist. But then we also have a pinnacle gift. A pinnacle gift is that one thing where everybody says to us, oh, this, this, this is what you are called to do. This is your sweet spot. So I have the wonderful privilege of coaching TED speakers. I help them get ready for their 12-minute speech, to memorize the speech, to know how to control a room of 5,000 people. And these are people with brilliant ideas who are invariably terrible speakers. <laughs> We're talking nerd scientists. And I have the best job in the world. I get to take a nerd scientist and give him jazz hands. <laughs> you know? This is my, and it's great. These are like people who changed the world. And I get to be the last one they see before they go on stage. The first one they see when they come off. Yeah, that, that's my pinnacle gift. That is my sweet spot. Now, we will always be called to the realm of our gifts or our pinnacle gifts. A lot of us ask the wrong question. We say, what does the world need? Not the right question. The right question is, what is my passion? Because what the world needs is people working within the realm of their passion. And then you will, in fact, meet the needs of the world within that realm. So the right question is, what is it that brings me alive? And so a call comes into your life. And you think to yourself, oh, joy of choice, this is what I've been waiting for. This is exactly what I've always wanted to do. Yes, I must say yes. Yeah, that's not your call. That's somebody else's call. Because your call is always going to elicit the exact same response every single time in the hero's journey. Your call is going to make you say, oh, shit, what? <laughs> you want me to do that? See, 
Because your call will always be within your realm of giftedness, but it will be to a place you don't think you have the ability to go because you've never been there before. And the truth is, you don't have the tools you need because you've never been there before. That's how it works on the hero's journey. You're utterly, completely terrified. That's because you don't have the tools you need to win the battle. You will gain those tools in the midst of the battle. Take a look at every one of the great myths. Beowulf has to go down into the deep, dark, black lagoon to fight the mother of Grendel. And he takes King Hrothgar's sword and helmet with him, and they are useless. How does he defeat the mother of Grendel? With sword, he finds in her bedroom, on the wall, attached to a chain. Always we will find the tools we need in the midst of the battle. And so every time you're called onto the hero's journey, it's always a moment of terror because you have the gifts, but you don't have the tools. You will gain the tools in the midst of the battle. Still, you must say yes. Everybody is called onto the hero's journey. People generally know where they're called. You know, as a therapist, I will ask people where they're stuck. And invariably, they can tell me where they're stuck. People know where they're stuck. They just don't know how to get unstuck. My job as a therapist is not to give them answers. I have no answers. My job is to help them remove the obstacles that are stopping them from finding their own answers. It's to help them get unstuck. And once they're unstuck, we can talk about their call. And the call will always be within your realm of gifts, but it will also always terrify you. And so the question I have for you this morning is, to what are you called right now? You're called. You know what you're called to. What's stopping you from answering that call? I'd like to end with a poem of Mary Oliver, The Journey. One day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. One day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life. You didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life you could save. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for coming to earth and showing us that you are good but not safe. Give us the courage to answer the call under the hero's journey. Give us the discernment to see what that call is and the wisdom 
to take us through the dark night of the soul that will enable us to answer that call. Give us the strength, God, to say yes. For this is our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you.